Welcome to Grumpy GDPR. My name is Miloš Novovic and I'm an Associate Professor of Law at BI Norwegian Business School. All opinions today are entirely my own. And I'm Ria Alexandra Valle from No Ties Consulting. And hello to the grumpiest bunch of people in the world. You're listening to another episode of the Grumpy GDPR podcast. This one comes with a very, very special surprise. So, hi there, Ria, could you shed some light on today's surprise? Yeah, it, it is a bit of a surprise. And I am so glad to welcome Max Schrems to the podcast. Hello, Max. How is it going? Hey there. Good. <laughs> so Max, your name is practically synonymous with uh, privacy and data protection in Europe and internationally. So I don't believe that we need a very long introduction. So I'm just going to skip straight over the part in which we normally introduce our guests. So once again, welcome. And uh, I think, Ria, you always have a tradition about asking our guests a few questions, sometimes grumpy questions at the beginning. Yeah, we, we try to keep our grumpiness in all of the episodes, uh, Max, but uh, as one of the uh, rock stars, I have to say, in our field here, uh, most of uh, our audience would know you by now. But is there one thing that people likely wouldn't know about Max Rems? Do you have any uh, peculiar hobbies or anything on your spare time that, uh, that is interesting or fascinating or funny? I don't know. I don't think I'm that fascinating, probably. But um, what should I say? Hobbies. I usually love snowboarding because it's. I realized at some point that it's the only thing where I have to concentrate. So I don't think about other stuff because otherwise I eat snow. Um, and at the same time, um, you're actually doing something that that's that's not brain based. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have mushroom hunting. So uh, Milos, then it's uh, it's your world. What is your peculiar hobby? Peculiar hobby. Hmm. I would say archery. Counts as peculiar, but I haven't done it in a long time. I shot a wall at home once, (laughs) so I was not allowed to continue with that afterwards. Uh, But so, so nice uh, once again to see that we have, that we are not just constantly grumpy. And yet today here we are actually being very grumpy because I think, um, well, Max has been especially grumpy about one topic, uh, at least judging by... Uh, in general, the Noib statements and uh, Twitter and everything. And that hot topic happens to be compensation for non-material damages under the GDPR. So there was a case uh, which is pending before the Court of Justice in which the Advocate General recently came with his opinion. And uh, yeah, because you usually have uh, wonderful insights to share about the fact patterns, can you just tell us, our audience, a little bit about what happened in this case? So I will intentionally keep this brief to get to the crux of the discussion. But uh, this all started back in 2017 when the Austrian Post collected data on the political party affinities of millions of people in Austria. Then using an algorithm to statistically calculate political affinities so that they could sell the results to political parties doing election advertising. Uh, Surprisingly, this was after the GDPR, but uh, yeah. One person then discovered that he was evidently in uh, favor of an Austrian right-wing party, which unsurprisingly made him very, very grumpy, much more grumpy than we are, I believe. And he took the case to the courts, including a 1,000 euros compensation claim, which I, by the way, think is way too low in this case. 
But this was dismissed by the initial courts, uh, who argued that uh, his discomfort and feelings of unpleasantness were below a certain threshold required for compensation claims, which then led to the Supreme Court referring the case to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And today we are discussing this uh, opinion of the Advocate uh, General, which is what happens usually before the court actually uh, comes out with their judgment. Exactly. So the uh, Court of Justice was presented with three questions, which Advocate General seemingly turned into four questions. And I think for us and for the sake of this episode, it's probably best if we go through them question by question. And I guess the first one is relatively simple, and I'm sure we'll cover it uh, in a relatively short time. So the AG chose to phrase the question as, should there be any compensation if there is no harm whatsoever? Uh, under the GDPR, right? So, Max, uh, what's your take on that question? Um, I think the answer is clear that, like, without any kind of consequence, like, let's say someone says, oh, there's a data breach, but I really didn't care. Obviously, what would be the harm? Or if someone says, oh, data was posted about me online, and actually that was a good thing because, you know, I got, I don't know, I don't know, I found my partner that way or I got more <laughs> commerce that way. I don't know. I, you know, you can make up stuff like that where you say, okay, people actually, it, it was illegal, but they actually didn't care. So the first question is, I think, only interesting from one perspective, which is how judges and courts reframe cases to get to a certain result. So that guy never said, I want to have damages without a consequence. And also a short disclaimer, I was um, talking to the Postal Service and also we also supported the guy that actually made that claim um, in in this case. So I, I kind of know we had contacts with both sides just so that, that and Austria is a very small place. So uh, you can probably no um, assume that, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just so that people know that I, I may have some information that may not be specifically in the reference. And the interesting part is how the already Austrian court reframed that and basically said, no, it's not about like, uh, my question is not, is this damages the, the claims that that guy had? But said, is there damage claims? Is there damages without damages, so to say? Is there tort without damages? Um, pretending that this is actually a guy that never made any claim, and that frames a case to a certain extent. Um, there is a bit of a backstory. The judge that is on the panel already published in that direction and cited himself and so on. And you see a certain pattern. And I think the advocate general was then super interesting to take that even further and basically say, isn't this punitive damages? Now, again, the original claimant never said, I want to have punitive damages of a thousand euros. He said, I, I'm, as you said, super grumpy or uh, the exact wordings I, I forgot. Um, is that already enough? And, and that is kind of where you see that actually through the process, the legal process, they are now talking about stuff that is actually not the original issue. But why do you think the courts uh, went that way in the first place? And then why did the advocate general go in that direction? I think in the GDPR, we became very political. Like if you take a very like neutral approach, you say, okay, that's the wording of it and so on. If you then read in the advocate general opinion, for example, that, um, you know, this would somehow hinder the free flow of data where like, there is no discussion. The court already found that this was illegal. They found that they have to delete the data. All of that is clear. It's, it's a national case. There's no free flow of data whatsoever involved. But you see how there's a certain feeling, I think, and that was generated quite well in the last years, that the GDPR is terrible and is killing everybody. So we need to kind of limit it somehow. 
And that is what you then see, I think, if you read between the lines in a lot of these judgments, especially in the German-speaking area. And one element that adds in the German-speaking area is that legal literature is very influential here. So courts usually look at what law books say and cite them and so on, which in other countries Mm -hmm. they do less. And now most of that legal literature is, is written by experts in the field, and experts in the field are usually lawyers that work for companies because you usually don't work for the other side. And and that is a certain tendency, which is not consistent, but leans a lot of that stuff into a certain direction, and that gets then picked up by courts and so on. And I think that's a bit what we saw here, especially this threshold idea, which I guess we're going to come on later. Yeah. Um, is something that comes out of the German legal literature and was then copied over in Austria, for example. Well, just to just to sum up that question 1A. So basically, uh, I think we can all then agree that if there is no harm, there is no foul, right? There is no need to compensate for non-existing harm. And we find the statement in itself non-problematic, even though the motives behind it can be questioned, right? Yeah, Amen. Okay, perfect. Uh, see, we're very, very efficient today. Okay, but then I think it's actually a very legitimate question in the second part, which uh, Advocate General asks, which is, can we then say, if there is harm, right, you need harm, can we then say that the breach of the GDPR itself constitutes such harm on its own, if I'm not misinterpreting the question, right? And um, I think the question is correct, um, the way it's framed. And again, just breaking the law itself isn't harm, so it's also a no-brainer. Both questions are, are really no-brainers if you look at it. And in the submission of the guy, of the guy that's actually the claimant said both cases shouldn't even be, should be dismissed because they're relevant <laughs> questions to the court of justice. Um, so just to, you know, probably set the picture there, right? Um, but what this gets to is a very different question. I think that's the most crucial question this whole, in this whole um, topic is what is the harm? what is the consequence and what is the GDPR or, or Article 82 and, and Article 8 of the Charter even protecting? And I think where most lawyers get wrong here is that they think about traditional forms of harm. They think about mental distress, which is itself protected under the Charter. It's a different article. Uh, they think about l- loss of money, like literally losing a job or something. That's also protected under the Charter, but different article. So we actually have a new sphere of protection here, and it's very hard to wrap your head around. So for example, if you think we would have um, immaterial damages for not being allowed to vote or for not being able to speak so let's say you do a demonstration and the police kind of you know, prohibits it without any legal basis and there would be immaterial damages. You would have to figure out how much is it worth that you can be on the street and, and holler into a megaphone. <laughs> and, and that is what kind of this fundamental rights protect. Or if you go vote and the voting booth is closed, how much is your vote worth? Because the reality is probably your individual vote doesn't change the outcome of an election. So th- there is no direct consequence. And I think what is missing oftentimes is the question of what does the GDPR or the, the fundamental right to data protection actually protect? And that is oftentimes this feeling of someone is using your data or of discomfort or the potential even that if you know someone else had that data, they could leak it, they could manipulate you, blah, blah, blah. A lot of it is very... Um, let's say, um, very hard and very intangible. I think people usually understand it once you ask a couple of concrete questions. But um, in in the Advocate General opinion, also a lot of the legal writing about this topic, they just jump directly from violation of your privacy to mental distress. And then there's, however, some space between that is protected that we're not debating. And I think that is what ideally the Court of Justice could debate. What is that space in between? 
and how does it look like? And I think that is that is what what's so frustrating that that there is not even remotely any talk about but it. In all fairness, looking just at the you know purely technical legal side of it, we agree that compensation claim is a purely tort claim that harm is an element of that tort claim, and that non-material damages are a form of damage uh, form of damages like compensation for harm which is not financial harm. Um, and I tend to just, uh, for our non-legal audience, like the way I usually explain torts is like there is a breach of some duty. Say I got fed up with my flowers and I put a flower pot on my balcony. Carelessly, recklessly, somebody walks under, the flower pot falls on them. And obviously there was perhaps financial damage. They need to buy new pants. And then there is all sorts of non-material damage. Maybe they will get very stressed and look up. Uh, every time they cross a balcony, maybe they want to dare go out. Maybe they will just choose to cross the street. Maybe they will be annoyed, right? Uh, but this is not different from any other areas of law because in very many other areas of law, we quantify different types of damages, including, I mean, honestly, if we're talking about privacy, reputation, this is two and a half thousand years old. We're talking law of 12 tables literally contained protection against insults. In a year 100, we've had the same thing. So what makes privacy or rather data protection so special here? I think it's new and they don't connect it to that. So your thought is exactly what we usually do or what I love to do is to just say, how did we do, do this ever since the Roman times? Because most legal issues are not 2022 issues, but are you know, as I said, Roman times issues. And we don't do that differently. We usually, in most countries that I talk to experts to so far, we usually objectify it. So we don't say because you're a person that is just a wimp or, you know, the strongest person ever, you get more or less of money. We basically say a broken bone. There's usually more or less a table in most countries where we say, okay, broken bone is on average, I don't know, a thousand bucks or whatever. Um, and interestingly, that's another topic that we mentioned at the beginning, the, the 1000 being too little. I think it's too high, personally. I, I very much have the feeling that like minor data protection violations should get a very low amount, but still an amount that is there and that is like proportionate. And that's extremely difficult in the EU because, for example, if you look at common law, we have extremely high emotional damages or, or uh, damages for like pain and suffering. While, for example, in Austria and Germany, they're usually extremely low. Like if you are in the wheelchair for the rest of your life, you get a couple of thousand euros. Um, and that's going to be interesting how to put that in proportion to a privacy violation to not be absolutely off the charts in, in that situation. But that's another story. And I think that that's another probably a whole different podcast. But the really interesting thing is we do it exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but we exactly do it the same way that we do um, usually look at objectively what what is the interest. And I, I sometimes try to explain it to people, say, if someone else just holds a copy of everything that is in your WhatsApp chat or signal chat or whatever, how much money would you pay to make sure that they delete it? <laughs> even you know or how much would you pay to not have it online because like if your you know personal messages are online probably half of your friendships are dead tomorrow <laughs> and and half of your employment contracts are dead tomorrow <laughs> and um, so if you think about that um, you probably can get an idea of, of how much this is worth so to say this violation for people uh, if you would frame it the other way around or to say, you know, how much would you want to have paid to have all your stuff online? If you say, yeah, for a thousand bucks, you can post my whole phone online. I think 
hardly most people will probably not agree let's put it that way yeah i, <laughs> I will just respectfully dissent here because i think that you know there is nothing unusual or special about damages here i mean defamation right it's the same principle how much yeah. would i pay not to have somebody say that i'm a liar or like how much should i pay for saying so yeah. so i just don't see why data protection would be evaluated any differently than saying somebody's uh yes defaming me but uh, yeah but however it's like literally a good part of the legal literature and a good part of the judgments we see coming in see it very differently they still see the gdpr as this like strange weird law that that, that you know some bureaucrats have come up with and and i think what we see is even from a democratic point of view really problematic because i mean we had more i think more than 90 percent that voted for the gdpr in the european parliament all the member states voted for it um so it's really it has a very strong democratic legitimacy and now a lot of like you know let's say experts in the field are gradually kind of adding elements to it like this threshold that we're going to get get to that's simply not in a law you can just not you know by by judges have elements added to laws that are simply not there um and that i think is 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 what we see a bit here so looking at the, this opinion then uh, from a, a high level perspective max what would you say is most problematic and if this is accepted as it stands today by the court of justice what is the actual practical implications of it that we know now um, I think uh, you're going to be surprised by the answer. Um, the reality is it would have very little practical implications because the advocate general opinion in one of the last footnotes says he doesn't even take a position of if that guy in that individual case now you know, overcomes that threshold, has damages or not, but that should all be decided by the national courts again, so we're back to square one. So why did he even go to the court of justice? What's really problematic is a lot of the wording that is in between, like there's just pages where just concepts of the GDPR are fundamentally misunderstood that a lot of people will just copy paste over and say, oh, now we have to interpret the GDPR differently because some advocate general said something. Wonderful example of that is this um, is the um, control over your data. So one of the recitals says that you may have loss of control in your data. The recital actually refers to data breaches, um, but it's now somehow used for this discussion as well. Um, but if you, what the advocate general does is that they basically say there are six legal bases in the GDPR, only one of them is consent. So they, there may be processing of your data that is not based on your consent. So you don't even have control over your data. So you can have loss of control in your data because you never had it in the first place. Um, and, you know, as a, law, as a law firm on the other side, I'm more than happy kind of take this up and say, oh, no one ever actually has any control over their data. Um, obviously, anybody working in the field knows a data breach can happen no matter what the legal basis is for processing the data and you can still have loss of control if that data is in some dark web uh, but but there is a lot of these things where you just feel okay whoever has written that has just absolutely not understood the basics of the gdpr and and that is where i'm the most worried about um also a short side note there's eight more cases or seven more cases on damages at the, at the court of justice right now so uh we'll see how how they go and if, if they basically influence each other the problem with this case it's the first one so it may be the lead for all the others yeah, and i think you raise a very important point there actually first saying that there are not too many practical implications but you did raise a very crucial one because this is something i see a lot of in decisions by dpas if you look at the case documents uh, in a decision, you will often see that uh, law firms, for example, use uh, these opinions uh, very much 
in these cases to uh, to justify their opinions and then the uh, data protection authorities uh, would have to sort of counter that so that could um, uh, absolutely be a challenge you do you, yeah, sorry to interrupt but i just have to say this do you both not realize that this is being done on both sides i mean come on the the opinion on contractual necessity like that is not overextending the law that is not saying oh yeah each contract has a fundamental purpose and objective and hey we can interpret it even if it's governed by chinese law of course the advocate general is sometimes going to swing to one side and sometimes to the other so I think the swinging is not like that. That's obvious. And that's part of the job. And I mean, courts also kind of have like, I think the, the court of justice has to say consistent, but obviously you always have opinions you like or more or less. Um, I think the interesting thing is more if like basic concepts get confused that much that that it allows other people to really kind of fundamentally depart from anything that 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 this thing says here. So I think that that is this advocate general opinion really sticks out in that like there is others I you know, would have decided differently for structural reasons oftentimes usually i'm oftentimes usually happy with the outcome but sometimes i was like the way to the outcome there is probably a systematically more accurate one for example that that's part of it i think this is exceptional in the in 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 this dimension of just really getting concepts absolutely wrong and and then in the end not even getting to a conclusion that's the funniest part of it it's like if in the end it would at least say there's a threshold it's like you know five millimeters above the bottom or whatever it is and and then we all know what the rule is but but in this case it just basically creates confusion and and introduces a lot of like very weird theories so to say so what do you think the advocate should then have done in this uh in this case um to be honest i think uh, the second question one thing we didn't get to in the second question was this kind of um uh, um, so first of all, the question if there is even room for member states to depart from the GDPR. And and that's one of the, again, structural issues I have with the opinion. Um, in the question where it is about um, efficiency and adequacy of the national law, so basically that the national law doesn't depart. So if you say you get for a normal in, in immaterial damage, you have one regime and then only for the GDPR, you have a really bad regime to undermine EU law. That is the first, that is in the second question, and then this kind of efficiency question. He jumps over that, saying it's harmonized. So why do we even debate this? This is fine. It's, it's, it's a valid argument. However, if you then to the third question, say national courts can depart from this and national law can depart from it, then apparently Article 82 is not harmonized, <laughs> and you have to choose one of the two. It cannot be harmonized on the question two and then not harmonized on the question three. It's this just is not a, a reality. Um, and I think that that is something where um, we could see an answer where we say, okay, the 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 generally it's harmonized. There is no threshold. It's simply not in law. And then the amount, which is really the interesting question as well, will have to be determined according to, you know, five factors that I can find, 10 factors that, that we can all look up in the law that we could see as factors. So to at least give some guidance to national member states, I think that would be a realistic answer. Um, and one thing where this kind of efficiency and adequacy of national law um, gets, gets really um, interesting is the matter of how you do the procedure, because um, if you, and that's kind of what the advocate general goes to, really have to interview each person that had a damages claim, and they have to cry in the witness stand to show that they were really, really, really suffering, 
then we have a very different um, standard of proof as we have it, for example, for a broken bone or for media law or for you know a slap in the face or calling someone an asshole. There we usually have an objective um, criteria, so you don't have to be in the witness stand and show that you were really suffering that much. And that becomes especially interesting if we have larger cases, if you have, as with the Postal Service, six million people that were actually had that data processed or leaked or whatever. Um, having 6 million people in witness then makes basically any kind of procedure like that absolutely impossible. And that is something that um, also we don't have much um, answer here on. But it is a very complex uh, matter, and that is definitely definitely something to keep in mind. I would just say that I'm not sure I fully, fully follow the argument that the courts now are expecting something different for data protection uh, issues, or did they expect some kind of different proof for those issues than in, as you mentioned, media law cases, for example. I think part of the problem is exactly what you point, that, uh, that there are perhaps more difficulties involved in, uh, in this relating to data subject. But at the end of the day, it is an individual claim that an individual can choose to pursue or not, uh, as long as they can prove material damage, rather non-material, sorry, as long as they can prove it, uh, and as long as the courts are basically granting the damage and not violating the underlying provisions of the GDPR, I think we don't have a problem. Yeah. I think it's it's fair enough if it's the same, um, but if in member states there's now a different, so to say, um, evidence procedure for these claims than for any other claim, then we also have an issue like under just a normal good old EU doctrines ever since. Um, and I think that was interesting that that was also jumped. But maybe we want to go to the last part with the threshold, because I think that's actually one of the most interesting parts as well, which is like the third question. Yes, that would that is definitely sparking some discussion. So should I be able to sue for one euro? I think Ria and I have had didn't we <laughs> fight over this at some point? Well, we have been grumpy uh, against each other on on these issues before. So uh, absolutely, uh, are we risking? Uh, uh, we, we talked about uh, access requests, uh, Bonanza. Are we now risking a lawsuit, Bonanza, under the GDPR? Um, I don't think so. Um, and in the submissions of the of the compl- of the of that guy that made the made the stuff, it's actually um, in there. The reality is you can also sue for one cent if someone else doesn't pay it. Like that's the same thing for material damages. You can sue for one euro if someone doesn't pay you one euro that they owe you. The reality is no one does it because of the procedural realities we have, that it's just absolutely inefficient to to, to ever pursue a claim like that. We more have it the other way around, that small claims are actually so hard to enforce that the EU has like a small claims uh, regulation to even make that possible and, and actually tries to kind of support that. Um, if I can tell you from our experience, if you have a GDPR claim in most countries, you pay about 5,000 euros and upwards just for a lawyer to even do a claim like that because they're usually very technical, take a lot of time. Now, you may get money back from the other side, but the claim, if it's 500 euros, the money you get back for your lawyer is like you know 300 euros. So you actually, bottom line, still make a minus with mo- most of these claims. And I think that is interesting that um, there are rules and there are is, is legitimate rules to not have petty little cases spamming the courts. But that is not different for immaterial damages than for material damages. That's kind of the reasons why we have cost structures that in reality make it very inefficient to bring small claims. Um, but we already have them. So I, want, I, I wonder kind of like in some of the legal literature in that, that's the argument to say we have to kind of alleviate the, 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 the courts from that. Um, 
but we're basically doing it twice then. We do it in procedural law and then we do it in the material law to kind of have two blockades for privacy cases that we don't have otherwise. The other thing that was mind blowing to me in the advocate general opinion was that he actually points at uh, bringing like declarations or actually nominal torts. So nominal torts is a one euro tort just to say you're right, but actually not paying you anything which is contrary to that idea. Like, I mean, if you now have only declarations, you have judges that have to adjudicate about shit for like a year, just to in the end, give you a piece of paper saying you were right. And and interestingly, for example, in Austria, that's not even allowed. Like you cannot have a judge decide a, a theoretical case. You have to have a claim, a, a concrete claim of some action. Um, so just a declaratory judgment in, in some member states may not even cut it. And it's however interesting to see we can't do the material, the non-material damages because of all these reasons. But then what the advocate general opinion points at is even like worse on any of these fears. And that is where, you know, where you see that there's, where I had issues with consistency with all of this. It's just like, doesn't make sense overall. If we move to solutions then to, to wrap this up. So since I am the non-lawyer in the crowd, I get to ask all the ignorant questions. Uh, so uh, looking at, for example, the EDPB, so they have guidelines for calculating administrative uh, fines under the GDPR. Why couldn't we have something similar for calculating uh, damages? I think in reality, if I may jump on that right away, um, we usually have that just in the case law. So what happens is you have individual cases, then people make tables, make overviews. And after a couple of rounds, a couple of years, you basically have an overview. That's basically how, at least in, in Austria and Germany, for example, broken bones are calculated. There's basically a table that the judges refer to. Um, sometimes that's also done within the justice ministries and so on. Ideally, we should have something like that in written in law, but that also oftentimes creates a bit weird situation. So for example, if you look at flight delays, you have these 250 euros up to 600 euros. And then, you know, if you, I don't know if you, uh, miss a very important business meeting, the 600 euros are probably not going to cut it. While if you just didn't care, you suddenly get 600 euros for like a flight that you don't care. For three so sometimes these things get a bit weird. Um, so I think if we just rely on case law to develop that, that probably would, would cut it. Again, I would stress that I think we, we would have to realistically compare it to other damages. And say, you know, it can't be that you get for a broken bone like a thousand bucks and for an access request being too late, 5,000 euros, then, you know, then people will question legitimately if that's, if that's realistic. Yeah, that definitely sounds, um, I mean, I can't disagree with the two of you on that particular oh, point, wow. which does, which does <laughs> make me Are very worried. Are you less worried, grumpy now, Milos? Yeah, 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 I absolutely am. No, we, we still have to really fight no, about something me, here. No, like, <laughs> I think I'm just so categorically against this idea that data subject protection should be any different from protection of anybody who has suffered harm, right? Non-material harm. You use my copyrighted work without giving my name. I've suffered non-material harm. Damage my reputation. I've suffered a harm. It might be difficult to prove it, but it needs to be proven still, right? The courts are the ones who need to yeah. do it. So, I mean, why should a data subject be treated differently than somebody who was mobbed at work? I think the answer is very political and is like, I think what we see is just a trend to say, oh, the GDPR went too far. All of this is crazy. Let's cut it back somehow. And damages just got hit by that. Oh, to me, it was the obvious, the, the opposite. I actually understood that Advocate General is saying, no, this is your non-material damage claim. And you are saying, well, to make it possible to get it, you need to recognize any breach as harm in itself. 
but that was misconstruing your words. I'm pretty sure about that. I, I may just not have missed, I may have just not understood your <laughs> question now, but we can probably just But I think on. that is grumpiness for, for another day. Sorry, sometimes I walk in circles like okay. this. <laughs> but do we have, uh, I think we have received a pretty good idea of yeah. where everybody stands. Yeah, and I think maybe uh, to wrap up, Max, uh, what do you think uh, would be the best possible outcome of this case now moving forward? Um, I mean, I think... Um, it's, there's a good chance that the Court of Justice doesn't follow this because the Advocate General's opinion is very political, I think, if you read it and very like, yeah, as I say, even from a very legal perspective, no matter what you stand on, like fundamentally inconsistent <laughs> in some points. Um, so it would be interesting if that changes. And I think what an ideal answer is, is guys, keep, hold your horses. We don't want to have thousands of euros. Um, yes, you need to have some damages. If you say I was all fine with this, I don't care then you, you simply don't have any harm and you simply won't get anything for it. But if you say, I really hated this and this was really, you know, offensive, for example, in Austria to be assigned to the right-wing populist party that kind of originally came out of the Nazi party and there is a legitimate like argument to say, you know, I'm really not cool with this. Um, and then you then compare it to a media case where we have these cases, if you call someone a Nazi, you get compensation for it, um, if you illegitimately call them. Um, so I think if we're getting to an answer like that and basically say, okay, it has to be an objective measure. If you are just the most whiny bitch in the world, you don't get more money for that. But, um, and I think that would get us very much to, to as we said, the, the traditional way of dealing with immaterial damages. And that should take care of it for the question of like this, like petty small stuff. Like let's say your access request was three days late. Then I guess the damages I, I would personally award to this is probably two euros. And then good luck litigating for two euros. Like no one in the world is going to do this anyways. So I think it's a non it's a non start as a problem. And and I think that would get us to a solution that would make sense and would be consistent with the law and how we do other stuff. And and I hope so to say that we're getting into that mm. direction. But but I guess we'll find out in a couple of months. So that was my final question answered right there. When can we expect the judgment? So uh, <laughs> a couple of months down the road. Anything add to this, Milos, from your end? No, I think I'm right now going to go to an antique store and look into a crystal ball to tell me if I was right or wrong or something. It's going to give me a typical legal answer. It depends, <laughs> right? So I'm waiting for my crystal ball. Thank you so much for joining us on the Grumpy GDPR podcast, Max. And uh, maybe we'll invite you back when we do have the final ruling at hand. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.